My name's Sharon Walters and welcome to the Seeing Ourselves podcast. I'm joined here today by Nadia Denton. Hi Nadia. Hello Sharon, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk to me today. I have been hosting this series now for the past couple of years. We're now into our second series and the Seeing Ourselves series is part of a wider project that I've been working on which involves not only this podcast but also a body of work entitled Seeing Ourselves which explores representations of blackness through predominantly um, visual media so I've been making a series of collages Um, but what I wanted to do was to expand that beyond the visual work and actually work with museums um, and look at these representations and have some very open and frank discussions so I'm an artist I'm a I guess a project curator and I have a real interest in how we see ourselves, how we're represented, who tells those stories, and um, how we're portrayed. But yes, Nadia, now to you. I would love you to introduce yourself. Sure. So I'm principally a film curator, but I have had an affiliation with the Victorian Albert Museum since 2015 as an African heritage guide. So I have worked with the museum to interpret the histories of people of African descent um, in objects they have covering the 17th and 18th century. So that's in the 1600 to 1815 galleries. Um, And I've also done that work with the attempt to engage families of African descent or of other backgrounds who are interested in those histories. Um, So as a history graduate myself, I'm someone who has a real love of the idea of uncovering hidden histories and also being able to use what might seem to be mundane objects or even items that people would walk past and not really think much of, you know, being able to kind of look at them and put them in a historical context and unpick that history. So certainly it's really from that vantage point of having led tours talking about uh, the histories of people of African descent in Europe um, during the 1700s and the 1800s um, that I, I, I look at what we're going to be discussing today. I know that we've worked together in the past, a few years ago now, isn't it? Yeah, I don't that's know right. how many years. But, um, you know, you came and you did it absolutely, at the museum I was working for then, and you did an absolutely amazing talk around Black Georgian history. And uh, I was really completely captivated by your talk. And the minute I had this project going on, I thought for the second series, it would be wonderful to bring you in. So I'm really grateful to you for coming in. So you've been having a look through the collections. How was that experience for you? So you looked through them digitally, online. How was that experience? It was tricky. I mean, I have to say the um, Royal Maritime Museum, I suppose, is a a lot like many of the other museums in the UK where uh, people of colour, people from, you know, desperate parts of what would have been the empire's histories are catalogued and presented in a way which means they're often obscured. Mm -hmm. So initially when I sort of you know, was searching for terms that I thought might bring up either objects or individuals, you know, I couldn't find anything. Mm. Um, and I know from my experience of working with the VNA, there are a number of challenges in, the, in terms of in the present day trying to unpick these histories, um, typically because of the way information was catalogued. So we have a number of things. At times there were terms that we used then which were acceptable, which now would be seen as quite racist and unacceptable. Um, Often uh, the people of um, colour or of African descent in this case 
may not have been named. They may not have known their name or cared to name them. Yeah. Um, and also sometimes maybe the curators who may have catalogued those programs didn't value them or didn't see that they were worthy. So often it's a case of really having to do um, you know, detective work um, and searching. So that was obviously the point at which I engaged with um, colleagues within the museum to kind of say, look, do you have some kind of internal list or catalog mm. that will give me a few more clues? And even then, you know, it was a, a bit unclear about exactly what there was. So um, it, it, it really uh, reflected, I think, the experience um, that probably a lot of um, black visitors have when they come to these institutions where they don't see themselves. So there will inevitably be objects that would relate to their histories because of obviously the, the nature of the history of these islands and obviously the hundreds of years at which they dominated other parts of the globe. Their histories would be there. But unfortunately, because of the way that they are um, presented and have been kept um, and sometimes purposely, I think, hidden, um, it's not often a easy to engage. Um, and I think that's also reflected probably when you walk through the galleries where it's not always obvious that a particular object may relate to persons of a particular culture or that it has a narrative that's tied to something quite important in that culture. Yeah, I think that is one of the major problems with engaging in with collections is that there are those barriers, aren't there, to access. And even with you and your amazing experience, and you're, you know, you're used to working in this way, there are still those things that are kind of blocking us from actually being able to see ourselves. Some of it goes down to also the way that these institutions and museums operate, where it's kind of like, you know, historically, when we think about how and why museums were set up, you know, they were keepers of a certain knowledge and there was a sort of privilege, I suppose, to having that knowledge, which meant that it wasn't meant to necessarily be accessible mm. um, and it wasn't necessarily meant to be easy for people to be able to engage with it. So I think we're still kind of dealing with the legacy of a system where there is hierarchy, there is a privileging of certain experiences and cultures over others, which means that if you are looking for you know, something that might have been more marginalised, um, then you're going to have to dig deep. But I have to say, you know, in my experiences, certainly I can refer obviously to the VNA. Um, it's always very rich when you do have those moments where you find the object and you're really able to unpick, you know, facts around the history of it that are just unknown or, or simply, you know, um, beggar belief. You know, it's really exciting. And particularly when you know that you can bring those to the public and to audiences who are hungry for that information. And I think that's the exciting thing about our conversation today, is that you have chosen um, to talk about someone who I think has been in many of our minds for some time, but I know through your research you've, you've found some very interesting um, information that I'm really pleased we're able to share today. Um, would you like to introduce who you have? Yes, so um, today we will be talking about um, Saki Bartman. So she's known really um, uh, in her anglicised name when she was eventually baptised was Sarah Bartman. Mm -hmm. And I refer to her as Sarah throughout this conversation. She was a black South African woman who was sort of taken um, without her knowledge, really, without knowing where she was going to be taken from South Africa to England to basically become what was really a circus performer. Yeah. So this was in the early part of the 1800s. Um, and she, at the time, was the most known African woman um, in England and indeed uh, in, in Europe. Um, and there were a number of things that happened in terms of her experience that really um, brought forth certain questions about the treatment of 
the African body, and in this case, obviously, her as an African woman. But then later on, even looking at um, some of the theories that were coming out scientifically about different races and inferiority and superiority. So Sarah Bartman um, had a quite challenging and difficult life, um, but she has left a very important legacy, some of which we're obviously going to be looking at, um, which is still with us today, hauntingly, but in a way that many people are probably not even aware. Yeah. And I'm glad we're going to be referring back to how the impact that it has on contemporary society and how we live today, because I think sometimes people aren't able to see how history has an impact on our everyday life. They kind of see history as being in the past and we just look forward, but it's not that straightforward. Um, so what I thought we'd do is probably start with this first piece that we're looking at here. Um, do you want to describe what we're seeing? Sure. So what we have is a picture of um, Sarah Bartman. So one of the reasons why Sarah was actually brought over to England was because of her physique. So Sarah had um, what we would now term as a quite voluptuous figure. She had a figure that wasn't necessarily unusual for South African women, um, indigenous black South African women, but was kind of seen as an object of curiosity by Europeans. So she had what probably would have been referred to at the time as, you know, a quite um, large and, you know, um, protruding backside. Mm -hmm. um, she also had um, sexual organs that, again, were, you know, not unusual, unique to the ethnicity that she came from, but were seen as something that, um, you know, was uh, a kind of freak show or curiosity. Mm -hmm. So we see Sarah um, in a costume that basically shows off all of her figure. She's, it's a profile view of her. We see her um, holding what appears to be a spear. So, um, you know, she's also got a, a pipe yeah. um, and um, she's got like a, a, um, some tassels um, around her calves. So um, the image is actually in likeness to how she would often be dressed for her performances. And the um, show performers, the English show performer who brought her over, as well as the South Africans, very much wanted to heighten this kind of, you know, almost, if you like, savagery, yeah. uh, you know, around the kind of African representation. So that was heightened in addition to obviously her voluptuous figure. So we see her um, standing uh, in a corner and then behind her are three men, um, three quite well-dressed men, probably society men who are basically oogling her. So they're looking at her. One of them has an uh, eyeglass, which he's using to look at her derriere, um, uh, another one is sort of behind him, you know, trying to almost, if you like, get her attention or engage. Mm, and then we have someone. And... Yeah. And then we've got a third man who's sort of watching the spectacle. So what this image really reinforces is the extent to which she was kind of seen as an object of entertainment, a spectacle. Um, she played into some of the fantasies that, you know, white European men had about the other. In this case, obviously, about the African woman, the dark continent and what that meant in terms of how it was represented in the body of, you know, Sarah Bartman, Venus, as she was also referred to. And it said here, um, the text says, La Venus Hottentot. Do you want to explain a little bit about that, that definition? Because that's a name that she was commonly used, known by, wasn't it? Hottentot was a term that was used to refer to um, people or women from uh, South Africa, Southern Africa. Um, and obviously Venus 
um, is um, sort of associated with the love goddess or at least a sexual type of goddess. And so it was really the term at the time used to refer to. So referring to obviously her physiology, the sexualness, the sexual nature of how she was perceived. Um, but yeah, Hottentot was a term that was used to refer to um, black South Africans at the time. I find this image really um, disturbing and I knew I would. And I was really apprehensive about this discussion. But I, at the same time, it's a really it's a really interesting one, actually, because while being really apprehensive and feeling very sickened by the imagery, um, especially being a black woman myself and seeing the way that she's being treated and um, clearly ridiculed and mistreated, I still feel like it's a story and a conversation that needs to be had because I think sometimes we can try to protect ourselves to the point where we're not actually, I don't know, I don't know if I am actually protecting myself. I think maybe knowledge in this scenario, as with many others, can be power. Um, so I am glad we're having this conversation. But I thought I needed to say that because I was very, very quiet. You could probably see I was very quiet because of seeing this properly face to face for the very first time. No, that's understandable. And the thing is, is that this picture isn't even the half of it. You know, mm. it gets much worse for her after this image was actually sketched. But, you know, I was reflecting on Sarah's experience and even this conversation I was going to have today, mm. because I do really approach these objects with reverence, particularly the ones who specifically um, represent people of African descent. Yeah. Because, you know, they were often representing real people. And I often think to myself, what would this person have thought about me talking about them? What would they want me to say? Mm. What are the unspoken things that at the time they couldn't voice, which is important for us to say now? So, you know, we are in a position of privilege, even yeah. looking at her history, being able to, you know, narrate it and to pick out specifics and in a sense to honour her. Because yeah. even though the research was quite difficult, um, it was quite harrowing, really. I, I sort of read about her just before the Christmas and it was like, okay, this is not exactly the most light, festive reading. Yeah. But when I got to the end of it, it was like, there is such a legacy that this woman has left that she would have never known she left that has sort of fed into arguments to the present day. And, you know, even in agency that we women, um, women of African descent, but just women globally have and conversations about our bodies and ownership of our bodies. That really helps to put everything in context as well. And, and it's, I really wanted to hear how, how you approaching this research had, had been. And I can see from what you've just said that it was, um, it was obviously very harrowing, but to bring the privilege that we have today, I think it's really important to talk about that privilege because it is a privilege to be able to do the work we're doing and to have the, to have the power that we have today to be able to voice these discussions and celebrate um, Sarah. So we have a second um, engraving here, which is, can you see that full title? Le Curo un... I was told about French at school. <laughs> yeah, my French is bad. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe my GCS <laughs> French can't cut it. <laughs> So we're looking at an image of Sarah and she's standing on what appears to be some kind of pedestal. She only has her front area covered again in this image, her um, bottom is exposed. There are what appear to be three men and a woman. one woman, yeah, mm. and the woman's crouching. And they're all watching her and I think one of the 
just seeing how closely they're looking mm-hmm. at her and and also there is text that goes from the mouth towards the area that the person is looking at mm-hmm. for each person um I think one of the most disturbing and upsetting things for me about Sarah's story is how closely she's examined and not just throughout her life but after her passing as well and how her body was treated. Mm, That's right. So um, just to kind of further comment on the actual etching that we have here, two of the men quite significantly are dressed in military regalia. Mm. And this is important in that the time at which Sarah came into prominence was one of shifting sands in Europe. So we have the Napoleonic Wars. Mm -hmm. So when she was in France, um, you know, there were things happening in the context of the war that would have also affected her. So that's why in terms of those two men in uh, their military wear, that Mm. is quite significant. But um, something else that I should have mentioned is that these two etchings as we have been struggling with the French uh, reflectors when she was in France. Now, when she was initially basically trafficked Mm. to England, she had a softer time. And if I I, I put that into context, when she came from South Africa, she came with a white English surgeon who had been working in South Africa, but also she came with uh, two other South Africans who she had known. So even though she was in effect being exploited, she was amongst people she had known for many years who she'd come here with. So she was almost like kind of part of a family as it were. Mm. She, um, a couple of years later, due to circumstance and some of those individuals dying and moving away, went to France. One of the South Africans took her to France. And that was where the intensification around her objectification Mm. worsened. Mm. And it was in France really where she was sketched and we have some of the imagery that we associate with her. Um, But it was also in France where they almost saw her as much more grotesque. I'm not suggesting that in England, she was seen to be more respectful as it were, but she was part of uh, an area where there were various amusements. So at that time, Piccadilly St. James's, which obviously is now very highbrow and posh, at that time was the center of different types of um, exhibits of freakery, if you like. Mm. So Sarah was amongst a number of freakery, and a lot of those were white English, quote unquote, freaks. Mm. So you had people who were like very short, people mm. who were very fat, who were tall, mm. who had skin diseases. You know, you had all types of people who were at that time deemed to be weird or strange, and yeah. people would come and pay and look at them. So Sarah being amongst that sort of um, uh, activity, if you like, wasn't necessarily that unusual yeah. because there were a number of other bodies which were being examined. Obviously, she was unusual for the fact of her physiology and her race, but there were other people too. When she went to France, she was very much isolated. And uh, that's really when things kind of went more downhill and things became much more harsh. Mm. And we feel, certainly historians would say that it kind of precipitated what was probably her early death. I haven't actually heard that kind of perspective before. You know, the um, transition from her life with, um, you know, with the owners, well, the people that came over and um, took her over from South Africa, and then that split. Because I know that the second person who took over her life and, you know, took advantage of her was Leroux, is that correct? Leroux? That's right, yeah. yeah. And that's when things took a turn for the worse, you're saying? That's right, yeah, drastically. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he was a bit of a dubious figure. Um, he was really, I suppose, in a modern day centre pimp. Mm. Um, and 
where Star Sarah had more agency over her performances in England. So in England, her performances, she actually sang songs and, and mm. performed music. Um, she, in France, it just became much more sexualized. Yeah. And, you know, she worked for much longer hours. And he basically plied her with alcohol. Yeah. And, and she, people were allowed to touch her, weren't they? That's at right. That point. Yeah. yeah. And also yeah. the speculation that he might have pimped her as well. And that because of the harsh treatment, she may have been forced to prostitute herself. But what it seems is, is that she was in a much harsher environment. Apparently it was a very cold winter mm -hmm. and she wasn't being given the kind of care or treatment that she needed. She mm -hmm. was just being plied with alcohol really to make her compliant. And so um, we think that that obviously, um, you know, fastened her, her, her death really. Because she died at a really young age. She was 26. Yeah, that that's right. Yeah. yeah. I think what I found interesting from some of the research was how she appeared to hold on to her dignity by by not you know not allowing her to exploit her completely by having her entire body on display and she what they asked her to wear body stockings is that correct yeah that's right and she didn't want to expose her body fully at any point can you talk a little bit about that and what you was there anything that you found around that you know from the european gaze because of the fact that with a lot of the African um, societies that they encountered appeared to be quote unquote naked. Mm. They just took it that, you know, these women were wanton and they were available and, you know, they had no sexual um, barriers. Mm. Um, but of course, within those cultures, they did have their own propriety. Um, and it didn't mean that people walked around exposing all of their body parts necessarily. There were particular customs that they were operating in. Um, so this idea that, um, Sarah, you know, would just be exposing her whole body. Mm. You know, she was never, that was never part of no. what she saw as the entertainment. She, you know, um, acquiesced to, you know, kind of being this display. And certainly she performed, she sang, she played um, a kind of tin guitar. Um, but, you know, um, pornography, as it were, was never really part of the equation in her mind. Um, and she did resist, there were attempts you know, but made by them for her to sort of be more naked or be more salacious, which she resisted. Um, but in the end, um, you know, she was forced. And that's how we have some of these pictures of her and of her body. What was interesting about the, um, in particular, were there anything, was there anything that you found particularly interesting about her story? Because I know that there are some alternative arguments that you have found through your research. Um, her cause was actually taken up by the Clapham sect um, in England. Um, this was a couple of years before she went to France. There was a particular um, uh, individual, uh, Zachary McCauley. He basically um, went to the courts to argue that um, her performance was immoral. It was kind of against God's will and that she was being exploited. Yeah. So at the time, it was a big sensation. You know, it was reported in all the newspapers, etc., and, you know, she was cross-examined. The uh, people traffickers that were, the English surgeon who had brought her over and the South African were also questioned, etc. And um, at the time, it kind of highlighted, um, you know, arguments about uh, the agency of Africans. So Macaulay was part of the Clapham sect who were, um, you know, um, anti-slavery campaigners. So they were very much um, championing the freedoms of African people certainly, you know, in the British Isles, or at least, you know, um, questioning yeah. the treatment of individuals. So as far as they were concerned, Sarah was being held against her will. Um, and she was basically being held in servitude. And um, 
she was being put in a situation where, um, you know, uh, it was um, heightening the levels of vice yeah. in London. So they had a very strong moralistic position in terms of what she was doing. So it went to court, it went to the King's Bench. And um, in fact, it went, yeah, it went to the King's Bench in Westminster Hall on the 24th of November, 1810. Um, and they kind of deliber deliberated um, over a couple of weeks and months. Um, Macaulay and the Clapham set wanted to liberate Sarah from her confinement um, and place her under proper protection. Um, but interestingly, Sarah testified that she was reasonably treated. Yeah. She didn't, the only thing she complained about was the fact that she was cold and um, kind of, you know, basically her working conditions at times. But she basically said that she had no desire to go back to South Africa and she wanted to continue under the terms of her work, which is basically, as she saw it, she was an entertainer and she got part of the wages of the money that was earned. So it heightened the awareness of Tension, her yeah. and her popularity. And in fact, some of the sort of sketchings and caricatures of her after the case kind of show her with money bags and like um, gold gold coins because it was like this African woman who had her own agency. We have to remember that even English women at this time wouldn't have necessarily had the agency in this particular way. You know, as it, um, so it kind of raised interesting questions about obviously race, about womanhood and um, even working conditions, if you like. Um, so basically the abolitionists lost the case. Mm. What it resulted in for Sarah was that she had a more concrete uh, contract and um, she had written security about profit sharing. And um, she was um, offered the opportunity to go back to South Africa if she wanted it. Mm. And what do you think of that? Do you think, because when I read about that, I thought, I felt that possibly she could have had so many, she'd been so tied to them that she felt as though she couldn't speak up. That was my immediate reaction. How do you, how do you feel? I think that... She was basically taking advantage of her agency. I mean, the reality mm. is, is that her father died when she was quite young. Yeah. And um, she, you know, was taken away from her homelands at a very young age. So what would she have gone back to? Mm. She was basically um, a maid uh, to a family, um, you know, and, you know, she had left that. She didn't really have much to go back to South Africa to necessarily. So one could potentially understand why she might think, okay, well, I'll stay here for maybe a bit longer, make a bit more money. She certainly probably wouldn't have made the money and had some of the agency that she had in England, in South Africa, because, of course, it was then at a time when some of the racial laws were starting to become more entrenched mm -hmm. about movement of people, what, like, black South Africans could do, etc. So I think it, it poses... This is where I think, you know, we have to be careful with how we look at things in a modern-day view, where, you know, as, you know, 21st century women, we have certain rights and privileges and we can kind of impose that. Um, you know, um, Sarah obviously disliked, um, you know, being ridiculed and some of the nasty behaviour, but certainly some of the accounts testify that she at times enjoyed performing. Mm. And also she was a bit of a celebrity. She used to have um, a, a horse-drawn cart that would take her down Piccadilly, you know, um, and, you know, she was you know, part of society in the sense of she was going to dinners and, you know, certain activities and, you know, um, had certain exposures to social circles that she probably wouldn't have had in South Africa. Granted, there was a given context, um, but she was with people she had known for a number of years. She was making her own money. 
And certainly up until this point, she had a certain amount of agency. Obviously, a lot of this was lost once she went to France. Mm. Um, so I think that she chose the option that was best for her. Um, and, you know, when I, I read about what had happened and the fact that she didn't really complain yeah. about what they were doing, you know, you kind of, you know, think about, well, what would her experience have been like, you know, from childhood, having, you know, seen her, her dad die and being taken away from the area that she was from, her sense of herself and maybe what may have been possible may not have been the way we're looking at it, you know, mm. right now. So that's really why I think she may have made the decision that she made. And also, she wasn't to know that things would become as bad as they, they were going to become. Mm. I think that's a really interesting argument that I hadn't actually considered. Could you see my, by my reaction when, I was, <laughs> when you were speaking? Because from what I read and from what I understood and from what I've known over the years, I kind of felt that Sarah's been someone who's been objectified, which we, we both agree on, um, but also someone who didn't have much of a say, didn't have much agency. So when I read that she had actually said she wanted to stay with them and that she had been treated well, as I said, I just, I just strongly felt that she didn't feel empowered enough to speak up. Um, was there any like concrete evidence to see that she was actually... I just wonder who was documenting, who's documenting these stories as well and who's telling her story. And so is this another case of maybe um, almost like propaganda where it's like, look, she was, she was very, very happy. She, she wanted to stay. She... Yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't know if I could say she was very happy. Okay. I don't think I would say that. Some of what I had read, uh, there were accounts by like journalists because a lot of what we know was like written by journalists and satires, etc., mm -hmm. people who were attending the performances and even people who had kept diaries. Yeah. Um, so um, what I understood was that it was kind of a mixed bag, mm -hmm. um, but it certainly wasn't as extreme as when she went to France. But I think what um, is complex is the fact that, as I think I've referred to before, but just to reiterate, I don't think that, you know... Um, as a woman from the part of the world that she was from, and even English women in this country, they didn't have a lot of options, mm. you know? Um, generally, you know, women's options were dictated by the family structure or by men. Yeah. So her, her, her predicament wouldn't have been unusual, you know? Um, in that, in, at that period of time, you know, as a woman, you would get married um, at a certain age, your husband would then dictate, you didn't have any land rights, mm. you didn't really own anything. So Sarah's situation wasn't really too dissimilar. Mm -hmm. So I think, again, we just have to be careful of looking at it with a modern day yeah. lens when actually at the time when you look at what rights women really had, it was actually quite restricted, really. Mm. Um, and even, you know, whether it be the law courts or the structures of the society didn't necessarily support them, whether they were black or white. Mm. You know, their options within that were quite limited. Um, so, you know, um, if, if you think of it, I mean you know, they, they, they probably are examples of working class women, but certainly would have been women in the aristocracy who would have had access to their own money and being able to use it for what they wanted. Mm. You know, the general rank and file of women wouldn't have necessarily had that. Mm. Um, so I think that um, the position she chose really reflects what would have been the options at the time. Mm. Um, I'm not suggesting that she was happy 
in the situation she was, I think she was okay. She was That's okay. That's who I have yeah. to She was getting by. Yeah, she was she, getting yeah, by. Yeah, but I don't think it was a case that she was so joyous, but it was kind of like, it was, you know, choose your what's going to be worse. Mm. And I think for her, going back to South Africa, to the uncertainty, to servitude, because she was a maid. Yeah. You know, she was basically um, a maid to a, a small family and, like, she, she slept, you know, in the kitchen. You know, you slept in the kitchen, you got up early, you had long hours, you know, you looked after the kids, you didn't have your own much of your own time to yourself. So mm. it's not like she had a lot of options or that there was some palatial life waiting mm. for her back mm. in South Africa. Through your research, and, and we know that there have been several books written about Sarah Bartman, someone, uh, well, Gordon Chippenbear said, she has become the landscape upon which multiple narratives of exploitation and suffering within black womanhood have been enacted. And she argued that amid all this, Bartman, the woman, remains invisible. I think this really strongly connects to both of these um, engravings that we're looking at here today, because she is objectified. Her as a woman remains, she, she's not visible, you know, she's visible but invisible, mm -hmm. isn't she? Like strongly visible but invisible. Mm -hmm. Can you comment on, on that and the impact of that kind of invisibility on maybe contemporary society? Yeah, it's quite interesting. When I was doing the research and thinking about her and her position and, you know, um, what happened to her and, you know, um, the dire circumstances under which, you know, she was dissected and her parts were on display. I think where she was invisible in her uh, own times and invisible in terms of who she was as an individual and her soul, if you like, it was just her body they were, you know, mm. interested in looking at. The legacy of what happened to her and the struggles to reclaim that dignity over 200 years later is I think what has made her visible. Mm -hmm. You know, the fight the South Africans had to get her body parts and even that whole thing of why the French government would want to hold on to her body parts how many hundreds of years later, yeah. you know? Um, that whole thing of her, the, the, the resistance, the fight uh, to bring her, her body parts back to South Africa, to repatriate them, to give her that fitting mm -hmm. burial um, the fact that we're even talking about her now, there are many people of African descent who are unnamed who didn't have that, mm. you know, who suffered even gross exploitation. Because we have to remember at this period, the transatlantic slave trade was still going on yeah. in 1815. So there were Africans who were undergoing much more harsh treatments, chattel slavery, mm. compared to Sarah. Mm. So I think the fact of her um, visibility is really in the legacy and uh, us holding the memory of what she went through and how it can be used as a source of strength and lessons learned, if you like. Um, and also not taking it for granted that some of the theories that have been passed down in Western society are based on very you know, racist and problematic notions mm. and individuals such as herself. I mean, she was specifically used you know, as a reference point for the inferiority of Africans, of African women, mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. So I think, yeah, it's kind of like she occupied this position of visibility and invisibility. Mm. Um, but clearly in the, the present day, she's very visible. And I think where she's even more visible without a lot of people realising it is the, if you can call it, epidemic in cosmetic surgery and particularly yeah. what is referred to as the BBL, the Brazilian butt lift. There's been a trend in recent yeah. years for women in the Western world to basically have a physique that mimics Sarah Bartman. They probably don't realize that that's no. what they're mimicking. But essentially, 
they're going for a figure and a shape that is not too dissimilar mm. to her, her her figure. And you know, the Brazilian butt lift is one of the was one of the most popular cosmetic surgeries in North America in recent years. Um, and you know, women are undergoing risky procedures, traveling abroad to get this figure. Mm. You know. Um, so yeah, I think it, it's interesting to reflect on that in terms of that question of, you know, uh, invisibility and visibility. Mm. So Nadia, you talked about um, Sarah's body parts and I'm not sure this is part of the story that everyone's fully aware of, what actually happened to Sarah after she died at the age of 26. The shady figure, La Rayu, he kind of um, offered her out, if you like, to a group of scientists, zoologists, naturalists, autonomous, etc., to do some still life uh, paintings and drawings. He arranged with them for a fee for her to be available. So she obviously didn't really know what was going on. She was told to go to what was then, it was kind of like a, a zoo stroke museum. Um, and she went and uh, they basically harassed her. Um, and they even themselves documented the fact that she was quite uncomfortable, you know. She was there within this room full of men who were just oogling her and they wanted her to strip naked and um, she refused. Mm -hmm. So I think it was like after a day or two, um, they basically wore her down. Um, so she strips, but she put a little cloth over her sort of um, private parts, yeah. her, her front private parts. Um, so they... Um, sketched and made a number of depictions of her, which is much of what we see uh, in the present day. But in the context of that, um, one of the scientists had indicated to uh, LaRue that basically they'd be interested in having her body should she die anytime soon. So it just so happened that obviously with her health being as it were, it wasn't particularly extreme, cold, harsh winter in 1815. Um, she died. Mm. And rather than uh, LaRue trying to obviously revive her or get her any help, he basically delivered her body to the, the, the scientists uh, less than within 24 hours of her, of her death. So really it was at that point um, that they basically um, set about carving up her body. So large bell glass jars were set out to preserve her brain and genitals. Um, plaster casts had been taken of her body her flesh was sliced around her hairline. They peeled back her face. They sawed her cranium. They removed her brain and embalmed it. Her genital organs, including her clitoris, vagina, and buttocks, were modelled in wax, and the originals were stored in a um, bell glass mm. with, obviously, um, some kind of alcohol-preserving chemicals. Her remains formed a part of the collection of um, ethnography, and, um, you know, scientific racism that we use to propose theories about racial difference. And interestingly, the scientist, uh, Baron Cuvier, um, who led um, the um, defacing of her mm. body, was made a peer in France in 1832. So very shocking um, detail, you know, and just to think about, you know, how she would have suffered in life and even in death, what happened. Um, very difficult. The interesting thing um, I should mention about uh, Cuvier was that he actually instructed for when he died for his body to be um, dissected. But um, his, probably, his rationale for doing that for himself was probably different to what they had done to Sarah. Mm. To Sarah. Yeah. 
So really horrifying detail of what happened to Sarah um, and very, very upsetting detail of what happened to Sarah and her body. I think that's the part of looking at her story that I found probably most challenging of all was what happened to her body even after her death. So that idea of agency and, and having a say in what happened to her, you know, there's no question that beyond her life that didn't actually take place. You know, she was still kept on display, um, her dissected body kept on display until the 60s, which is a huge period of time for her to be, to continue to be ogled and to be treated like an object. But back in, in 2002, her body, her remains did finally return to South Africa for burial, didn't they? That's right. So um, it's noted that about 2,500 people attended her state funeral, which was on the 9th of August, 2002. Um, and, you know, at the time she was seen as a very significant symbol in terms of the South African imagination of how people of African descent had been treated, particularly by the instruments of European white supremacy, how, you know, uh, European racism had made Sarah, you know, a Frankenstein monster, mm. you, know, um, you know, of its time, mm. you know, how it had created its own kind of stories and theories to make who she was as a, a natural individual something grotesque. Um, so she is a very strong symbol in the uh, South African imagination in terms of obviously what she had gone through and then her um, eventual repatriation. I think also when we look at the struggles of women of African descent, mm. you know, she's probably one of the most significant publicly known figures. Yeah, definitely. What do you feel history can bring to our everyday life? You know, what can be the impact of history? And, and to looking at stories such as Sarah's and exploring them and critiquing um, the information that we're given. My view of history really is that it can be used as a tool for us to be able to speak about the unspeakable, mm -hmm. you know, to confront certain human truths and difficulties um, but essentially, I think it's very key for us being able to move forward, mm. whether as a particular culture or a society or as a country. You need to understand certain things that have happened in history, the fact that there are different accounts of history, there are different perspectives. You know, a, a, a healthy, well-functioning individual must have an understanding of their own personal history, whether it be to do with their family, their community, um, you know, their racial grouping or geographical area they were from, you tend to find people who have a strong sense of themselves and who have good self-esteem or, you know, who have a great sense of their place in the world are those who feel that they have a good understanding, you know. And it's really to understand that, you know, there's no good and bad in history. There's just things that have happened. And there's no one group that was, quote, unquote, better than another in history. People have done things. Groups of people have done things. You know, history comes in cycles. And so, you know, some empires rise, some decline. Um, but I think it's just stepping over ourselves where there's instances of censorship or this idea of, oh, no, we don't want to talk about it. Mm. It's too terrible. You know, that happened then. We shouldn't look at it. All of these things that have happened historically are still with us and are still happening. And if we refuse to look at them or refuse to discuss them, in a sense, we create space for them to continue to happen. So that, to me, really is the case for history, is, is that... It's important for us to know what happened, 
good, bad and indifferent, you know, and to be able to use that as a basis of strength to be able to move forward. And I just think Sarah would have never imagined that us two black women would be here in this institution, the Royal Museum of Greenwich, having the opportunity to talk about her, you know, to immortalise her even further than she has been. So it's recognising that we can take these difficult histories to a place where they can be symbols of strength. Thank you so much, Nadia. A beautiful way to close a, a very important discussion. I can't thank you enough. Honestly, thank you. My pleasure. <laughs> but all the thanks really goes to Sarah. Yeah. yeah. And all that she endured and um, all that she went through. Yeah. Yeah. You've been listening to the Seeing Ourselves podcast hosted by me, Sharon Walters. I'm a London-based artist whose practice includes hand-assembled collages celebrating black women. You can find my work on Instagram by heading to London underscore artist one or by visiting my website, londonartistone.com.